WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. Welcome to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on the air every Sunday at 1 p.m. We are a project of Educational Praxis and the Spark Teacher Education Institute, a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Indigo Radio, and our show is recorded and posted to SoundCloud and the iTunes Store. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. And today we're going to be talking to a member of About Face. About Face is a group of post-9-11 service members and veterans organizing to end a foreign policy of permanent war and the use of military weapons, tactics, and values in communities across the country. As people intimately familiar with the inner workings of the world's largest military, the U.S. military, About Face uses their knowledge and experiences to expose the truth about these conflicts overseas and the growing militarization in the United States. So welcome back to Indigo Radio. My name is Nick. I'm a teacher up in Springfield, and Patrice joined me for this interview with About Face. She's a professor at Keene State College and a faculty member of the Spark Teacher Education Program. Today, we're going to be continuing our conversation about anti-war movements, but particularly the involvement of veterans, U.S. veterans of post-9-11 conflict and war, um, and their involvement in social movements across the U.S., supporting the work of movements here in the U.S., particularly Standing Rock, amongst many others, and really how the military affected her personally, but also how it affects the many, many lives of those young people that enter the military after high school. Thanks so much for joining us on Indigo Radio. Ksenia, could you maybe talk about your work with About Face generally? and maybe talk a little bit about what About Face does. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Ksenia Goropaeva. I'll just start off that I came into this space, um, About Face Veterans Against the War, uh, where I, I find it to be my political home, one of many, by my previous service, active duty service in the United States Air Force. And so uh, About Face Veterans Against the War is a um, organization formation collective um, of post 9-11 veterans that are uh, speaking out against the forever wars that are essentially you know entrenched into our american society and you know our our organizing our our work is it's it's really important to mention that it's built on um, anti-war, anti-racist, you know, feminist um, organizing of veterans of prior generations. So the Vietnam era and, and really others too. There's so many to name, so many conflicts and, and wars that have been going on. So can you tell us a little bit about what About Face does in terms of organizing and how you show up in communities? 
Yeah. Thank you. That's a good question. Yeah. I think again, I'll just kind of start with my story. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm originally an immigrant settler to uh, Turtle Island to the United States. I was born, it was still the Soviet Union, but is now Russia. And so my relatives come from uh, now Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And I grew up in, when I did move to the United States, I grew up in Oklahoma in a military family. And I joined, I ended up on the path of, of military service because I, especially as an immigrant, I didn't feel that I could pay for college at the cost that it, that it was. And so it's really kind of an economic draft as, as, as you know, we name it, that I participated in, in the military. And my service ended up being um, overseas the whole time. You know, I became a logistics readiness officer and I was stationed on three different continents. Um, and in, in the military, in the understanding of like the military structure, it's three different commands, right? Because the, the military itself is, is divided into commands, geographic, and also sort of your um, like professional uh, commands. And so it was, a, that was a, that was a, big piece of my life to, to, to kind of long to, to long for something, uh, because of my past immigration and unbelonging, and then to join the military and, and serve overseas, which is, you know, a hectic, a really intense environment. And then after six years, you know, I, I finished my service. I was actually let go with the downsizing during the Obama administration, that promise to withdraw from Afghanistan, which, you know, those promises have been made over and over. Yeah. And so then when I left active duty service, it's, it can be very discombobulating, can be very scary. You can be very, like, you feel a sense of loss and you can't define it because really, you know, I spent my twenties in the military and then here I am, I'm a civilian, I need to find myself. And so that's how I found myself in about face and really the veteran organizing community, you know, as an immigrant, I began to, um, during graduate school, I began to participate in immigrant protections and things like that. And I started to make the connections between war and profiteering, and then really the effects of all that violence that is, that is funded by the United States government. And then during that journey, you know, it took, it took years and where I am now to really like find my voice and be able to speak out or even just speak my truth. Um, you know, as, as it stands, you know, the military, the veteran voice, the service member voice is really counted, you know, despite a lot of our institutions, you know, diminishing public support, public respect, the military still stands as a, you know, respected institution. And so veteran voices are really powerful to, to speak out against the narrative that like war is good for all of us. The organization has been around for over a decade, um, and it was formed by, um, you know, a, a group of um, service members that were part of the invasion into Iraq, and then they came back and really, you know, struggled with what they participated in and began to speak out. And so a lot of our work is, is narrative work and culture work, right, to connect what is the military industrial complex. You know, when we, when we look at Congress and the overwhelming majority, no matter what party, receives significant donations from the defense industry, right? I think something like 509 out of 535 members in 2019 received enormous, enormous donations. Uh, we really have a warfare economy. And so veterans that are fighting for justice, for liberation, for, against poverty, you know, 
uh, use their voice to speak out uh, and make the connections in different spaces. Again, whether it's in, in culture and um, arts, or if you know if you're an attorney and speaking out against the the policies, because those connections really are seeped in. I would say like all parts of our society. And so, and then the other piece we do is kind of counter recruitment, which is really important. Sort of a little bit of what I'm doing with you today is really speaking about the truth of of service and what it means and you know, something I wish somebody would have told me when I was thinking of joining, somebody would have set me down and really said like, this, this is what you're signing up for. We have, we have uh, folks that are involved, deeply involved um, in schools and uh, providing alternatives to youth. And that, and so, and that kind of brings me to, um, you know, what we do is really healing work, you know, because these, these pieces of ourselves um, are really, are really, you know, we, we can't dispose of our participation in these wars and, we also can't just bury it. You know, I, I, uh, my stepfather is a Vietnam veteran. And so I, I, I see the, the, the um, issues in, in the population of, of, of decades, right. When they're, when they're buried. And so, and then the third piece that we as a collective really commit to is our own like collective healing. So we have a, a peer to peer community care um, kind of like sector and group that is really dedicated to, yeah, helping each other because um, a lot of times these systems have failed us. We see how they fail our society. And so it's on us to take care of each other. And so we recognize that we're a traumatized population. And a lot of times we're working with other traumatized people. And so, and I would also say the value of living in a society that doesn't, doesn't value healing, doesn't provide for the, you know, for its people, doesn't take time for those things, countering that yourself with your community members, with people that you trust is really, it's really an important grounding practice and sort of creating the world that we want to see, knowing so well the world that we don't want to see, that we participated in. That is so much felt in your bodies. So one of the best projects that I was involved in at About Face is, um, Similar, similar to how I met Unicole, a teaching like a, a block of, on militarism and teaching on the ways militarism is part of our society, but through a burlesque show. And so there's a lot of performances, there's a lot of moving of your body, which um, was, like I said, for me, was just incredibly healing and transformative experience. And so, yeah, our goal is to, to, uh, let other veterans know that they're not alone, that there are others that are on their healing path. And then there is a healing path and then we can, you know, kind of get through it together. And there's so many, so many outlets in so many different ways, um, whether again, helping uh, immigrants, helping uh, being in really in step with supporting indigenous sovereignty is really, like I said, is, is really been a healing, healing part of my journey. And yeah, our, our, our what we do is let other veterans like be a pathway to joining kind of this movement and the, these spaces. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely heard about all the good work done by veterans at Standing Rock, and I'm sure that I haven't heard many other stories of veterans coming out to support movements that exist here in the U.S. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what the role is of, you know, someone who goes into the army in, in the global domination U.S. global domination economically, politically, and obviously militarily? Yeah, that's a very good question. And yeah, I'll definitely, again, um, you know, share as best I can from 
my experiences. I'll say I'm not a historian, but that's okay. I have, I have a really deep experience elsewhere. So, so I would, one of the things, one of the things that really come up with me when we ask this question, like, what is the, how is this connected? How is the military connected to this global domination? Like, like you said, economically, uh, politically, and militarily. It's really like, there's, there's so many ways that I can make that connection. One of the ways is when I joined the military, I didn't know that uh, with the difference between officers and enlisted, right? Uh, my, one of my stepbrothers was enlisted. One of my, one of my stepbrothers was an officer. And we have to understand that that is a representation of a class structure, right? Um, your officers receive more, more pay. They are told they, you know, we can't uh, really, you know, hang out and have relationships with enlisted. Like I said, they're higher pay. They get uh, different positions. They're more managers, right? So a little bit, you know, it's, it's represents like a capitalist class structure, right? Um, and it really teaches you that, right? It, it um, teaches service members, the veterans are society, right? And so it really teaches you to uh, perform and live in this class structure, right? If we look at the, the business world, right? Uh, the books that are sought after are, are military tactics, military stories of, of, of military officers who have single-handedly or themselves were responsible for these battles or these um, really not even battles because U.S. military loses a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of conflicts and things like that, but kind of a personal, how did I, how did I, how was I able to, even though the conditions were so rough and we weren't winning, how did I still come out with a positive attitude, right? That is business, business strategy, business culture. So in, in my mind, that is really, really connected and important to understand that the U.S. military, you know, politically, culturally, uh, teaches that, that that violence and the patriarchal and a settler colonial terrorism like violence is what is the example what should be what should be looked up to and you you know you said global economic domination again back to, in, to my experience you know I was stationed in, in um, three different countries right in what's called Asia referred to as Asia and then the Arctic and Europe as a military member and later, maybe as a general, being part of that system, right? Whether you're a military officer with, that served 20 years, or then you become a general, and then you become, let's say, a consultant for a company, right? It could be a war profiteering company or not. You you kind of have free reign across the globe. You don't really need passwords. So it's like this elitism, right? That, that's only reserved for some people. And it's reserved for international corporations that exploit, that destroy environment. I hope, you know, I hope you, you understand the kind of the connection that I'm making, but the, the U.S. military really has the same access. There's not that much difference between, you know, it, there's adulation for officers to serve 20 years, right, in the military all over the world. It's, it's a great thing. And then you go into business. You know, that, that system is connected. You know, politically speaking we, and economically speaking, you can, you can, we can also bring up sanctions in our society. You know, we're told that sanctions are kind of an option, a good option to to perhaps punish someone for human rights abuses. You know, the mil U.S. military has, it's, a, it's an actual profession. There are officers, there are units that uh, perform psychological warfare, right, on, on nations. And it's actually, you know, it's done it within our, within our nation as well. And this, this is a robust, again, <laughs> profession that has been around for decades as, as long as we've been warring. And then, you know, that is performed in other nations. So, for instance, I, you know, had, I was stationed in, J in Japan and Korea. And so really, you know, that's a whole another conversation we can get into, but the military is there to you know, militarize the society and, and teach the kind of 
teach the military that we are like in, you know, we have a, a status of forces agreement, right, with uh, like the Philippines to really quell dissent, right? And which is, which is similar to what the U.S., the National Guard does in the interior, right? And the harshest violence is, again, against indigenous, indigenous resistance, right? And then you look at um, our, the U.S. military role in the Philippines, we are funding the Duterte regime that is a, that is an enormous, you know, human rights uh, abuser, right? Uh, but the United States is, is paying money and helping, you know, involved in exercises and things like that. So the connection, again, between silencing the public and in, in, instilling a uh, militarized uh, role of, of whatever government is, is really the role that I've observed and that I've, you know, understand it to be from my time in and from my time post, because a lot of times from a perspective of US military member, you're really, I forget the exact quote, but you're kind of propagandized the most. And so whatever your role is, you really don't understand beyond uh, beyond what you do. You know, if, if, if your job is is to, to load planes, you really are not gonna learn about the other pieces, connections, what the Intel unit does, what other uh, units do. And so it's making those connections can, can be a little bit tough later. Hopefully so you're that. never really given the full picture. You are assigned a task within like a line in the way that you'd be assigned a task in a factory line, much like the women in the maquilladoras in Mexico. You don't know what the end product of your behavior or your activities are. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, not only are you not told, you're not, it's a culture of, of not asking, not allowed. And then also, I mean, this is a practice of a sort of a secret police state. And we have, you know, we have military police within the military. Uh, we have secret uh, agents, right? The special investigator, investigators within the military. So it really creates a culture of kind of spying on each other and really keeping each other in line. So I, I, it's really like whatever your job that you're doing, you're, you don't have time to really do any, any other job. And the job that you are doing, there's a lot of, you know, violence. Basically, the chain of command has to instill in order like for performance to be be high. So yeah, you're really busy with just making sure those performance markers are good. And then any sort of any way that you fall outside of outside of the outside of the the main culture, which is essentially, you know, I would say it's, you know, white supremacist, patriarchal white supremacist, but anytime you kind of are outside of that norm, right, you, you are punished. So a lot of times, and, you know, I, I say that without bringing up examples, but a lot of times it's women and, and people of color, right, that um, assert, try to assert their power, try, try to, uh, you know, uh, have, a, have a different opinion of how things should be done. And that's usually, you know, usually dealt with uh, not in a positive way. So I'm wondering, like, in terms of the U.S. Armed Forces and what you've described as kind of a instilling a or reproducing and enforcing a class structure. How do you see that being expanded beyond the military to the places where you are stationed? So for example, like you have this hierarchy within the military, but then you're dealing with people around who are from that place. That's really interesting. Yeah. I hope I'll try to answer your question again, just from my experience. And then just the experience of 
you know, when I was stationed in Japan and just generally speaking, right, your lower enlisted service members are going to be punished or the only ones that are going to be punished, right? Your higher classes are, uh, and, th- and this can be seen from the culture, you know, from the statistics of military rape and, you know, assaults and, and, and death really Rare, rarely, rarely, rarely ever that you get a military officer actually get any, receive any kind of punishment through the legal system. Right. And so, but you're, lo- you know, your lower enlisted are going to be, and especially what I observe people of color and women are going to be punished, kicked out, which a lot of times you can be kicked out without the, for, and then with a dishonorable discharge, which means you cannot later receive healthcare through the VA. You can't receive education benefits. I mean, it's it's horrific what, what's done. And then your higher ranking officers are, meanwhile, you know, dining with uh, higher ranking military officers of, of the local, right, of the local population. So that, I would say that like, uh, that, that relationship building, that that mingling is is done with the local population. Yet again, when 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 you know our soldiers bring violence onto the population of local people, and local people demand demand some kind of you know punishment or the shutdown of U.S. military bases, and nothing nothing happens. I, so yeah, I, I, if that's what you're asking, but yeah, please please let me know if you, if you're thinking of some some other way too. Um, but that's what comes up for me. I remember too you were talking about what what was happening in Greenland and how people would leave the base to go uh, to like a local area and that um, that there were incidents that took place um, that it influenced also the culture of those places that it wasn't as if the U.S. military base was somehow isolated from the local population, but instead that there was like an exchange that was taking place um, that was affecting the habits and activities of, of people in their homelands. Yeah. Um, you know, in Greenland, it's, it's in the Arctic. So really the base was the base where I was stationed was built in 1949 um, on a village of, you know, Inuit local indigenous population that was that was moved or removed, right? And so now the base stands on a place that that was some, someone else's. And so uh, the close we have there were villages that were I, w- I want to say like seventy kilometers away, um, but they would come around on certain during the summer when the ice is, the ice cap is melted and they're able to to get to to uh, the U.S. military base by uh, dog sled. Um, they would come by and, the, and the, their interaction was, you know, they were given gifts kind of for the children because, you know, a lot of times these these families don't have a lot. There's not a lot of aircraft that, that go out there that provide supplies. And so the exchange there is sort of a very like paternalistic relationship, right? One that kind of showers the children as, as almost as orphans, you know, presented as orphans with these gifts. And then, and then the issue of like alcohol is addressed. Um, you know, if there is an issue of alcoholism in, in that local population, I would say, you know, I was there for a year, but it really depends on who the commander is. You know, at that time, our commander took a hard line and said, you know, make sure don't let anybody inside. Don't let, don't give anybody alcohol and things like that. But it is, I can say without a doubt that it really depends on the culture that each commander sets. And so we're only there for maximum a year, but the villages there are, that's, that's their whole life. And so, and I think, again, I think uh, at the end of this party, right, the celebration, I think it's, it was not, it was particularly like on Armed Forces Day, some of the families are, uh, I think the winner of like a race is given a weapon, right, as a gift. So again, 
you know, I, nothing, nothing great to speak of, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> we're storing fuel there. Uh, there's nothing really done for environmental cleanup, right? And <laughs> there were there are sites. Um, that base in the 80s, I guess during the Cold War, uh, housed uh, tens of thousands of soldiers. When I was there, it was just a few hundred, a uh, few hundreds of active duty soldiers. The rest were, um, the rest were contractors from Greenland mostly, uh, or I'm sorry, from Greenland, from from Denmark. So Danish, right? So even the job, you know, the jobs are given to the to the Danish. Our U.S. soldiers are there, but again, the footprint of the the actual base that exists in the 80s is, is, is huge. I mean, and all those sites that are no longer operable, there's no there's not much environmental speak up cleanup that I, you know, again, I wasn't, that wasn't my department. I wasn't in charge of it, but but we know, I mean, this, these are things that are reported in, you know, and um, named super fun sites, right? You know, as we know, one of one of the most environmentally uh, degraded places are military bases and prisons in the US. And so of course the same is practiced overseas. If you could speak a little more about what is being done by veterans here at home to, to combat the US domination uh, that you spoke of uh, around the world. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I am thankful to find more and more veterans that, that are speaking out. Yeah, using their voice, using their voice to really um, dispel the myths you know, that service is, is a good option in, instead of, you know, instead of school or, and again, this is from my personal experience, no one out of the military coming out is going to be unharmed. You're going, you're, you're going to be yourself a harm doer and you're going to be harmed. And so really understanding um, the violence that you're going to experience and that you're going to be a part of, right? Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken at, at, you know, here at colleges and really, I really, you know, having these dialogue, dialogues with young people and especially here in, in the New York City area where I'm at, uh, really having this conversation with young people and then they tell me how supportive their parents are. And, you know, a lot of times it's immigrants immigrant parents, which was my case too. And so, but really creating the space to kind of have that conversation and say, really you know, what I'm hearing is a lot of times students really understand that, hey, I, I understand that that's not a good option. That's not an honorable choice of, of a career. And so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of these conversations with students are really important. And then for me, I would say also um, coming to the front of, of struggles of, then within, within empire, right? like what I've discussed is, is right. It's the global empire that is us, right. That is, that is involved in, um, extracting, right. Extracting, uh, resources, right. Um, that's tied to business that's tied to global international corporations. And so connecting the struggle that let's say people of Colombia are facing, right. With us funding that regime and sending weapons there, uh, the Palestinian struggle. I mean, I, myself, I will carry this with me that I participated in the movement of weapons to Israel, but those same weapon manufacturers that mm -hmm. uh, send weapons to Israel also use uh, tear gas in Ferguson, right? They use tear gas inside our prisons, right? On people who are, this is biological warfare. People are sprayed with chemicals and a lot of times left without giving a shower for up, you know, up to a week. And the, I myself, before I joined the military, also, I was not, um, I was afraid to, to say the word class. I was afraid to say the word mm -hmm. communism or uh, imperialism. 
really not allowed to speak a lot about about these things. And so, what what may, what brings me joy is to see veterans in connection with the struggles against prisons, right? The struggles um, against uh, the border, right? And the violence that is the border itself and the mechanisms and institutions that um, are created and, and the communities that they harm, right? Those communities have been speaking out and fighting um, against these forces since the inception of the United States. They're unpurposely hidden from us, right? And so, so veterans engaging in that type of, you know, struggle and solidarity is what we see. And so, like you said, whether it's um, Standing Rock, but there's so many other pipelines. I mean, that is, that is one pipeline and we have so many more and we have so many more environmental institutions that are failing us, right? That could be doing so much, so much more for all of us. And so, yeah, so for me, yeah, veterans really coming to that struggle and and coming to support, not coming to 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 speak, to be, uh, to lead, right? You know, a lot of times veterans are needed just just to support, just to provide meals, just to be there. And when you're, you know, when their voice is needed, then you know, then they're, they're invited, and it's it's really powerful, and it really makes uh, makes it, you know, make it makes a dent. You you had said um, that you wished you had had a different option or somebody to, to talk to about a different option. I grew up in a family of police and military, and I'm in this class because I want something different for myself. Mm-hmm. That, this is the first time a young man has ever said that in my class. Mm-hmm. And so what advice, I think, you know, do you have for young people? What do we say to young people that are being pushed or feel like their economic option is to go into the military? Wow, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm going to take a breath because yeah. I've, I've thought about this. I've thought about this for years. I, I don't know if... I don't know if anything would have been said to me to stop me either, right? So I I do understand that too. I I understand that I'm not going to, you know, I as as a as a white settler, I'm not going to talk an indigenous person out of joining the military, right? And it's also, and people will say the military has been around forever. Yeah. During college, I was studying international relations. And I remember one of my professors telling as I was, I would sit there in my cadet uniform, he would say, oh, what's the oldest institution in the two, there's two institutions that are the oldest in the world, what are they? And it's the military and the church, right? So, so they exist, but I think maybe if I would have dove a little bit deeper into understanding, like, what is the relationship of the state? What is the relationship of my state to its people? Uh, what, and then reading some accounts, right? Reading the stories that exist um, of the post 9-11 veterans that are that are writing and kind of sitting with that and really maybe finding some time to understand what what is an alternative because I really did go in there thinking I really don't have any other option I really don't have any other option I I don't have everybody said well you speak Russian you should be good to go work in the state for the state right honor yourself and give yourself the space and the time to say, what else can I do? And I didn't do that. I really did it for survival. And again, when, when it all finished now, I, now I feel comfortable telling myself I'm an artist or I'm a healer. Back then I didn't, I didn't allow myself those, you know, those callings or those professions or those um, interests. And so I, I really, I really urge, you know, uh, others to to find that and and then listen listen to anti-war like young people that are that are speaking out against these wars um i've mentioned to nicole uh, the dissenters it's a youth movement 
organizing against the forever wars. And I mean, I am, you know, I'm so excited about this. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're present on university campuses and in other places, and they have amazing, amazing training. They, um, I just got one of their, um, uh, I just purchased like a poetry and art artist book. So you had mentioned too, you, you started by talking about the economic draft. And I remember this conversation that we had where you said that, yeah, of course, that's why college won't be free. That's why college won't ever be free for people because there's no other way for them to recruit because people wouldn't choose to go and act violence um, and experience violence um, if they had another choice. I mean, I think that's it. Like I, again, I, I didn't see any other option and we have a society that is built on war. If we did have free education, then there would be free healthcare because we would have free medical education for everybody. How amazing is that? That way we can have, you know, educate, like we have medical centers that are also teaching, right? Teaching young, young doctors. And so everyone can have great teeth. Everyone can have uh, really, you know, not, not, not a healthcare system that addresses crisis, like, like a healthcare system in crisis, like we have now but a healthcare system that is, that is uh, proactive, right? And that is really ensuring that there is public health. This, this really brings me to like a conversation that I think is, is also missing, you know, that we don't have with each other in our society of this, um, of this volunteer force, right? Right, we're told we have, we don't, we no longer have the draft, yay, right? You know, I've, I've heard different stories of, of um, folks from the, uh, you know, that grew up during the draft, right? There's those that that were able to to not be drafted, right? I I, I just heard very very you know different stories of how their lives ended up, and then there's people that served, and but then what we have now is really like a selective um, like a selective volunteer service, right? Because there's people that, like you said, grew up in military families that oh, I want to go. I want to go do violence. I want to go be special forces essentially. Right. And then there's people that, Oh, maybe I'll join the air force and I'll just be in the medical field. Right. And I, I, I won't, I'll just get paid and I won't get. So this, this volunteer like recruitment or this really like the way that folks like fall in line into the military, it really is selective, right? It select, it pre-selects people based on their class, based on their desires, based, based on their like proximity to military. Right. But that's really how you're pulled in you know, and, and folks join on the myth that, oh, if, if I'm, if I'm just in the medical corps, I won't experience that much, you know, violence or I won't be deployed, which is not the case. Like the, the military will always do what it needs to do to get the mission done. And if, if this year it will say, oh, medical corps is not deploying to hotspots or something next year, we'll say, oh, now it's deploying and we need extra people. Like you really have to understand that. I mean, and one example of that being is the stop loss order, right? Um, so that is what, what, what happened was um, we, we continue to stay in these conflicts. I, again, my experience in 2014, my last year in the military, the air force cut, I want to say 25, 30,000 people because we were pulling out as promised out of Afghanistan. We did not. And so then certain people that are already stationed in uh, conflict zones in war, uh, the army stop loss them. They said, you, you know, your, your contract is due to end, but we need you, you're gonna stay. That's it. I mean, and so 
Um, yeah, that's just, that's just one example of, again, the military is going to do what it, it needs to do. It's, it's not going to really, your, your, your life and your, your, what you, your plans for your life do not matter. One of the things you said earlier is that you felt that when you were, you were lying for something in that earlier conversation, I think at the beginning, and out of that economic draft, you ended up, you know, making the choice and that there was that longing in you of, a kind of belonging um, and that you felt like your political home now is with about face. And I, I just thought that was an important connection for me in terms of, and then you said, and we don't live in a society now that takes care of each other, that there's an ethic of care or, and that there's actually this work that feels like healing, that is healing work that's happening in the work with about face. So it's it's personal and it's political, which we know is the personal is political. But I wondered if you, if there's, I know my father was a, a Korean in the Korean War and he never spoke of it. The silence that you, I mean, he never spoke of it and you could not get him to speak of it. And the harm that's done that we don't know about, that we're as absent from our, even in our closest families. I wondered if you had any more to say about what that, experience is that and I think when you said the word solidarity that's what it feels like to me to hear you speak Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's thank you for bringing that up like you said it's it's um it's really personal and oh goodness um I've just you know I've never been I've never been a part like a, a silent person um I I've been in a place where I, I mean, I, I moved to this country when I was 11. So, and I didn't know any English and it was, it was a shock obviously. And it was, I was just lost for a long time, you know, as a teenager. And like you said, that, that longing, um, even, you know, I joined the military because I was looking for something. I was looking for, oh, I'm going to find my independence and things like that. But even when I signed the contract and when I, you know, or when I was going through the RTC program, a lot, of, a lot of my thoughts were, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? Why isn't anybody saying anything? I'm just walking around in this uniform on campus. This is so weird. And this is so, it shouldn't be like this, but nobody said anything to me. And so I, while I was in the military, you know, some of the things I witnessed really, I had to really suppress like myself and my being, you know, just, just like one example is like, I guess the way that I, the way that I, um, made it okay, made it all okay for me. It's like, I'm going to take care of my people. Like I'm, I'm an officer, I'm a Lieutenant, I'm a captain. I'm going to take care of my people. And so the way you do that is, is right. Is brass, right? Like higher command, right. That are a lot of, you know, sometimes you get some that are not, not so cozy, not so nice, um, with their own complexes. And so I, you, you try to stand up and then a lot of times as a woman, you, you are, you're met with, with, you know, harsh retaliation. I remember one time I, I was, I, you know, I, I was with my people and my a commander actually in a room alone told me that he could kill me for basically dissent, that it would be legal. And so, you know, I, I share that to say it's maybe been many years that I can like talk about this. Right. But just how much that, that fear of your own survival and responsibility of being, you know, in charge of other lives as an officer. That's what you're told. 
That's what, that's what your essentially chain of command is and your struggle every day with, you know, the mission that you're performing. And then also the relationships within the military that are at struggle, right. All the time I had to come back and I had to let that compost inside of me. And I don't know, be just being who I am before I didn't know these connections. I didn't have the political analysis. I didn't have the political connection of what is capitalism. I think that really fed a lot of my fear and I kind of um, existed in a fearful state. And so now, now that I've made these connections and I've found other people that have shown me the example of courage. Um, and so really, I don't know, contending with that in, in your own like personal, not just skill set, but value set and what you're capable of, what, what you want to kind of fight for and stand for. It means like, standing up for justice and liberation for all people. And yeah, so like you said, it's personal and political. So I feel like what you've also said, though, is is describing the great um, responsibility that teachers have to give students those tools before they graduate from high school so that they go in understanding the system that we live in and what the other options are, that there are other not only other options for for employment, but also like a different way of acting in the world and striving towards something else. So that's the lesson that I'm taking. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Again, um, my experience in Oklahoma public school was wasn't of that. I didn't I didn't have any voices that would give me like the counter narrative, right? And and um, to to the hegemonic to the dominant narrative that America's great. <laughs> And um, yeah, it's, it's really good to be honest about our past. You know, I've been on a journey of learning the history of Russia and you look at where the current, uh, you know, Russian Federation uh, police and military came from and it came, you know, from Tsars and making that connection of like how is society built with, with this uh, mechanism of, of, of state, of control, and then who enforces it and how. Are there things that listeners and uh, that we can do to support the work of, of About Face? Yeah, so we have a website, About Face. It should be aboutfaceveterans.org. Yep, aboutfaceveterans.org. And we have we have a YouTube channel. We have um, we have a, a great um, Instagram and a Twitter. And so going on there, one, just sign up to receive, you know, our updates, our letters, if you'd like to. We share a lot from our allies, like right now. I think today uh, we have um, a uh, organization called Afghans for a Better Tomorrow that's taking over our Instagram. And so really supporting the demands of, of, the, of the people where our country has waged war for a couple decades. Um, so yeah, going on our website and, and joining us on our social media, um, sharing with other veterans, post 9-11 veterans, so they can become a member. Um, tell them, hey, this this is you might check this out. And you know, and this was my journey too. Sometimes it takes a while for a veteran to kind of find the courage, a service member to find like the courage, the the room to come come join us because uh, it's really heavy to acknowledge like, hey, I was I was part of things that are not not great, not not good. But yeah, just sharing sharing with other veterans that we're out here and you know, they'll so so they're aware, you know, they'll receive an email, they'll receive a phone call from one of our members. Uh, and really, you know, so, so we can start being in community. 
but we really, really, you know, honor a, a welcoming space, right? You know, donate if you'd like to support our work. Um, we have, we have staff members, we have a board and we have a sort of a, like a senior leadership team. So in, in any kind of support will help, will help fund our work, will help us get to all kinds of places to have these conversations, um, to have trainings. Um, yeah. And do you, Cassidia, do you do speaking engagements? I think you said earlier, like um, that you would come to college or mm-hmm. and have a maybe we could schedule an event or have a, have you speak? And yeah, have, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, at State, we would love to have you join us there and um, do some work with us on campus. Great. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Cassidia, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll also be talking about um, the ways in which what Ksenia calls the economic draft affects young students in our schools today. Ksenia will give us kind of an overview of how she landed in the military and what she wished she knew when she was younger that maybe would have helped her make different choices for her future and and really how the military affected her personally, but also how it affects the many, many lives of those young people that enter the military after high school.